I get to the baby, that's a problem. Cause I'm way too scared to call and you might give me a stay Welcome to the Eastern Shore. I'm Brock Winstead. Today on the show, move fast and write things. My guest this week is Elliot Pepper. Elliot lives in Oakland, and he's the author of three novels, the Uncommon Stock Trilogy. This series of thrillers tells the story of startup founder Mara Winkle and her company Mosaic that makes financial fraud detection software. Over the course of the trilogy, as the company moves toward an IPO, Mara and her team face not only the challenges of growing the business, but also a deadly conspiracy that wants to murder them, because of what and whom her software threatens to expose. The third book in the trilogy, Uncommon Stock Exit Strategy, was just released last week. I talked with Elliot Pepper recently about his books, how he went from studying international ocean policy to writing thrillers set in the world of tech startups, the lessons he learned from working in the startup world himself, and how he navigated the business of publishing and marketing as a first-time unknown author. Here's Elliot Pepper on the Eastern Shore. Well, Elliot Pepper, hello, and thank you for trudging the treacherous, what, four <laughs> block blocks? and a half. No, yeah, not, not even. Not even, okay. <laughs> um, to come and sit down and talk with me. You are the first, by the way. You're the first interview I've done for the Eastern Shore in my house. Oh, I'm honored. Uh, yeah, getting a little closer uh, every day to my goal of never leaving the house again. Um, it's important to have things to work for in life. So uh, the third book in the trilogy has just come out, the Uncommon Stock Trilogy. What is the the through line of story that, that connects this trilogy? So the premise is there, there's a, a girl, a college student in Boulder, Colorado. Her name's Mara Winkle, and she's, she's in school, and she decides to team up with her best friend to start a new software company. Uh, so they, they actually drop out and start this company. And the the technology that they've developed is basically like spell check for financial fraud. So they have these pattern recognition algorithms. They're able to eat huge amounts of financial data and spit out inconsistencies. And so they're really excited about this. But as they start to build the company, as it gets more integrated into our financial system, they get drawn into a huge money laundering conspiracy along the way. So the story of all three books of the whole trilogy follows them basically from garage to IPO and all this dark thriller uh, roller coaster that they have to survive along the way. Your trilogy built around Mara Winkle. There are a couple questions, interesting questions about origins in there for me. One is uh, you chose uh, a female entrepreneur as your main character. Everything in a, in a book, everything in a work of fiction is an intentional choice. Why did you choose a female lead character in this startup world? Good question. And 
actually to one-up you. Um, uh, Mara is both female and African-American, which both gender and race have been a big issue in the tech world recently in the news, right? But my intentions behind it may be sort of boring by, by the standards of, I guess, the press around these issues, because my perspective it, like these, the, although Mara is female and African American, this these books have almost nothing to do with gender or race. Like the story is not about either of those things. The story is about someone who's building a breakthrough company and who gets sucked into all these negative things along the way and sort of surviving that adventure. And my perspective is that, you know, I I, I wanted her to be who she is, and like that's certainly the character that evolved as the as the story progressed. But that, uh, you know, having a strong female character or something like that is not that's not why I wrote these books. In fact, I sort of think that the it's it's sort of interesting to think of how that's always an issue that gets discussed. Um, and I'd like to see more strong female characters or minority characters in many stories to the extent that we don't ever need to talk about it anymore. And, and you should check out interviews with, it's Joss Whedon, right? Joss Whedon. He's been interviewed about this a lot, and I fully am with him on that perspective. He, he said that he's going to keep writing strong female characters until he stops being asked about it. When you described the business that your main character, Mara Winkle, uh, and her partner, Bill, in the books, you had a very clear idea of what that business was. This was not some hand-waving, oh, they have a startup, it does something, technology. Where did that business idea come from? <laughs> so initially it was a little more hand-wavy. Like when I was starting the, the first, I was like, okay, like if they, I mean, I you know, you can do algorithmic data analysis on all this stuff. And that's sort of a nice way to do it. If you say they have a magic algorithm, it's like a nice black box, right? Sure. It, it's it's very Silicon Valley, the right. show on HBO. Oh, yeah, it's compression. It, it worked. It, yeah. it's a, that's actually a perfect analog. Yeah. yeah. So it's like this was the same. This was like using that similar black box idea, but for finance. And so that, that was how it began. But it's actually been really interesting over the course of writing the trilogy because I've learned so much more about that world. So I've interviewed uh, federal investigators, uh, special agents for the Treasury, the people who run anti-money laundering programs for major international banks, people at Homeland Security. And it is actually shocking how vulnerable <laughs> our financial system is. And, and it's been really interesting learning about why this technology would actually be super useful. Have you ever been tempted to put down the books and actually just start the company <laughs> that you've been writing about fictionally? I mean, are there other people doing that out in the world? There are. There are people who are trying for sure. Probably. The, oh, why am I blanking on the name? We can look up the name of the company. Um, actually, Peter Thiel has a, one of his companies. It starts with a P. I don't know why I'm blanking on it. But like they're probably the closest real world analog. I don't have the hard math skills to do it myself. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not as smart as the CTO in the book. When you started the first book, there was a, a bit more hand-waving about what exactly this company was. So how did you hone in on what the company and what the technology would be that, that your protagonist is building? I had a, a lucky crutch there, and that is that most people, when they start companies, have no idea what they're actually going to be. So I, I, <laughs> I got to use that. <laughs> um, but yeah, initially they're, uh, you know, they start out and they're not sure what they're going to do with it, and then they decide, oh, we're going to sell this to accountants because like accountants have to 
help people with their taxes and it would be useful to see if they made mistakes, right? But that doesn't really pan out for them. And then they get interest from a larger bank. And at the time, I remember reading a, a news story about how, I don't remember which bank it was, but one of the major, you know, one of the big banks had just been fined like over a billion dollars in Mexico for for corruption, for money laundering. And I was like, okay, if I was a big bank, that's a lot of liability. Like that's a lot of risk exposure to deal with. Um, and I might be interested in trying to hedge against that a little bit more, especially because banks are huge organizations. And the big problem is just making sure that individual bankers are not cheating the system. When you have tens of thousands of employees, that's really hard, right? So this kind of algorithm would help you do some internal, like basically, uh, quality assurance, right? Like make, making sure that people, that your own employees aren't cheating or that partners aren't cheating you or, you know, those you know, big, huge fraud schemes aren't being perpetrated through your bank. And if you were able to avoid more of those, you'd actually save a lot of money. So then I started asking questions. So I, I talked to folks in the federal government and, and in banking and asked them about this stuff and discovered that there's actually a lot of interest in this. Over the course of the trilogy, Mara and her business partners go from launching the company to eventually an IPO. And you know, you, you want to raise the stakes over the course of a trilogy. To some extent you can you can do that by following the path of of a business along that trajectory. But how else do you raise the stakes over the course of the three books? The the basic thing that happens in the books as their as their company is growing is that they they start to realize that there are things going on behind the scenes that they are not party to. And initially they think that it's, you know, a solvable problem, right? And so they they try, they they try to solve it and they're young, they're ambitious, and to be perfectly honest, like a lot of young ambitious people, they're sort of arrogant. Arrogant might be the wrong word. They have a lot of hubris, right? Because they they are trying to change the world, and that sort of you have to have quite a bit of ego in in order to believe that that's what you want to do, um, and and so they overstep, you know, without sort of thinking things through and get themselves in more trouble, and then discover that the initial problem that they were hoping to address is actually way bigger than than they initially suspected. Um, And so they just sort of get deeper and deeper into the muck as their company continues to to succeed. So uh, it's not just that the company is getting uh, larger uh, or more successful and they're building toward an IPO, but there is a ratcheting up of the kind of danger around them personally and yeah. business-wise. Yeah, I mean, their friends are getting murdered. Yeah, <laughs> which, I mean, I think we should probably say is, is not typical in yeah. a startup not world. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly hope not for yeah. the sake of any founders listening. Not that we know <laughs> of. Um, you talked about this this phenomenon of the young hubristic founder, and there is this phenomenon in, in the, the business, especially technology business world, of people who think, well, I, I know how to solve problems. And here's a problem, so why don't I solve it with the technological problem-solving skills that I and my partners have? And then coming up, that, that impulse coming up against these things in the real world, and it may not be a shadowy conspiracy that wants to murder you, um, usually. More often, it's uh, that there are established ways of doing things, uh, and, and there are regulations around an industry or a set of industries, 
And often they exist for a really good reason. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't know the history of them, you sort of come to them and you're like, well, how is, why is this here? This is stupid. Well, it turns out. Um, What are some of the things that Mara Winkle and her partners in the book, in your books, have to learn along the way that isn't uh, just uh, that people want to murder me? There, there are probably two sides to the coin of that answer. So one is the more sort of explicit stuff. So, you know, they, they start out and they're trying to be, they believe in being direct and like doing all, you know, doing all these things just as they should be done. And as you say, they don't necessarily pay attention to established norms. That's often a good thing, right? Like new things only happen when people don't take what the world gives them. But at the same time, the world exists in the way it does for for a good reason and and so they run into that as they're trying to basically recruit customers so you know like they're dealing with a big institution and they're like why aren't they making this decision right and not realizing that internally if you work on a team like you have to get buy-in from everyone else around you and you have to help that person do it and that takes time and like you can't assume those kind of things right But I think that maybe the more interesting piece, at least in these books, I think we could probably talk about trends in the real world that are really interesting in terms of, let's say, folks who are very embedded in the Silicon Valley bubble uh, and don't necessarily are are less aware of the the world outside of that bubble and and but still have a huge impact on the world outside of the bubble right so that that's interesting but in the books another big piece that they're struggling with and this is also because they're they're young they're in their early 20s is just dealing with each other um you know what most people don't realize who have not worked in a startup or been re- or known people who worked in a startup is that most companies fail because their teams implode, not because their product doesn't work or because the market doesn't like it. And so what's funny is that from the outside, we see like, oh, like this company went bankrupt and like everybody had to go away, right? But what actually happens often on the inside is that you have people who just don't have good relationship dynamics, right? Who lie to each other, who are competitive, too competitive with each other, who maybe don't don't respect the other things that that their team members have in their lives, um, or that you know don't don't consider their feelings. I mean, like, or who are selfish in the way that they deal with others. And ironically, that's actually the, the, that's the vast majority of startups, um, particularly because. When you're working with someone who might be a friend, which is most co-founders, and you don't necessarily know what those norms are, right? So particularly in starting a company, there are actually a lot of norms that exist for a good reason. So how are we going to split ownership, right? Like basic things like that, which seem sort of obvious. It's like if me and you were going to start a company, like, oh, well, I assumed we were doing it 50-50. And you're like, oh, but it was my idea. So I should have, you know, those kind of things are why companies fail. I used to think that I had a kind of convoluted or at least out of the ordinary non-traditional pathway Mm -hmm. from education into work life, especially what I do now. And then I started looking at your background. (laughs) So how did you wind up writing a trilogy of thriller novels? Uh, Randomly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, I mean, I guess in school, I actually studied international relations and I quite liked it mostly because I really loved languages and I loved travel. 
Um, and I also enjoyed sort of thinking about the the House of Cards political gaming of, of international diplomacy. Yeah. Um, and I was convinced in college that I wanted to do international ocean policy research. So I literally wanted to help change the law of the sea, which mm. is how nations deal with the open seas. Mm. And so I went to grad school uh, down at UC San Diego to, to study that. Um, so they have a school of international relations down there that's, that's really good on those kinds of policy issues. And I worked in the lab of David Victor. He's actually the head author at, of the IPCC's climate change reports. And so for me, that was like this dream, right? Like I worked so hard to, to get to start doing that research to work in his lab. And within a few weeks of starting uh, the work, I realized I absolutely hated it. Like, what about it? it so the, the thing that I hated was I, I was excited about doing that kind of work because I was excited about really like feeling, seeing the impact of what I was doing. And feeling the, like you were making a difference. Make, and in a tangible way, right? Um, and the challenge with academic research, particularly on the policy side, is that th you are making a difference, but the, the difference that you're making um, comes to fruition years and years and years down the line because the sort of ultimate impact of the research you're doing is to change how leaders think over the course of really long time horizons. Yeah. But the reality of the day-to-day -day job is a lot of reading, you know, like a lot of highly technical reading of academic analyses of international environmental treaties that didn't work, and then writing your own analyses of the analyses. And, and I, so I found that very frustrating, even though I really loved working with uh, Professor Victor. And so I ended up, I quit. So six weeks in, I, I quit that job. I still continued to finish out my master's there at the program, but I no longer worked in the lab. And that was a bit of a professional crisis for me because that had been my internal plan forever, right? And of course, few plans survive contact with the real world, and this one certainly didn't. And at the same time, I had, I'd been doing an internship for a startup that was based in San Diego. And they did plasma arc gasification technology, which is a, uh, a waste energy machine. And it was crazy. I mean, like, we, you know, they were super early stage. Lots of their stuff still didn't work. Um, but we were trying to make it work and trying to get them projects. And so, I mean, that was fascinating. Um, but but I, I realized that I was actually really enjoying working at this startup more than I was enjoying my academic studies. And so I put much more of my time and intellectual effort into that and uh, eventually finished my degree. And then uh, I co-founded a consulting company with a few friends and we sort of extended the work we were doing for the startup. So we uh, advised other clean tech companies on market entry into Latin America. So we had clients that ranged from like energy storage startups all the way up to one of the top 10 global solar firms. Um, and we would help them figure out, okay, we want to enter a new country and el the electricity market works differently there. The regulations work differently there, you know, like the partnerships mm -hmm. we need work different. Mm -hmm. So how do we get in? Right. So you, you were still taking that, that interest in policy and international affairs and the intersection of the two and applying it just in a, in a very different context and very different way than you thought you were going to. Yeah, yeah. So it, I definitely was, was able to use a lot of what I had learned in this new effort, even though it was definitely far from wherever I imagined myself going. 
And then I got recruited into work for a venture capital firm based in San Diego. So uh, they're, they were, they're called T2 Venture Capital. And I was an entrepreneur in residence for them, which is sort of one of these bullshit job titles, right? It's like, I want to be at home all the time, right? Like, this is perfect. Um, and, uh, and it sort of varies firm to firm what that means. Uh, and, and so for what it meant for me was that uh, in addition to helping them sort of uh, vet potential entrepreneurs to invest in and decide where to invest, I was actually a drop-in operator in their portfolio companies. So I would be like almost like a consultant, but from your investor to come in and like help you reach and pass your next growth milestone. So that would depend on the, the size of the company. So for some, you know, for example, maybe we were spinning out a technology from a, from a, an academic research lab, like a science, hardcore science right. technology. Um, and so I'd go in and help negotiate the license and figure out what the, the market, the business plan would be for commercializing that technology. Through working for the, the venture firm and, and through starting my own little company and, and working these different startups, you know, I, I was just constantly immersed in this world of sort of high intensity personalities, mm -hmm. right? That like the people who start businesses, it's, it's, you're taking a pretty big leap. You're quitting your job. You're, you're doing, you're, you're trying to build something really fast and, and really impactful. And so it tends to attract people with strong personalities, right? Sure. And those strong personalities can do great things and they can also do terrible things. And when you put them together, it can be a dangerous combination, right? So living and working in that world, it was just crazy just seeing what would happen. I mean, I have literally had friends like be the victims of fraud at companies, like been investigated by the FBI. I've seen like international smuggling to try to like, you know, like get things over to do a demo. I mean, just yeah. crazy stuff. Um, are you, do you typically kind of run at that pace and at that level of intensity yourself? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, like, uh, I mean, it's sort of funny cause I've never, like, I've never been the CEO of like a high growth technology right, right. company. And I actually really relish the fact that I'm not, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I love working with those kind of kinds of people because it's really, really fun to put wind in their sails and to. To, to try to help them deal with both the objective problems of company building and also the more subjective problems of, of like dynamics with their team, like just like peep that, you know, like it's hard on you as a person yeah. to, to, to have that kind of pressure on yourself all the time. So no, I, I, I don't think I'm that, like, I don't think I necessarily have that personality trait. Um, but I do enjoy working in that world. You saw something in that world or lots of things in that world that made you think, well, there, there are stories here. Absolutely. So to me, when I, so I've always been a voracious reader. So I, I love stories in general, um, novels, nonfiction, everything. And so when I started working in startups, I read a lot about them. And it turns out there's a ton of really good business nonfiction about startups, you know, venture deals by Brad Feld, the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz, uh, recently zero to one by Peter Thiel. There's a, there's a ton of good stuff out there and there's also a mountain of crap, right? So like, you know, the vast majority of it is hot air, mm -hmm. but there is some really good stuff. But what I noticed as a reader, it was, it seems so funny to me that there wasn't fiction, much fiction at all that, that used this as a setting. And I found that odd because I was experiencing the human drama of living in that world every day. And it just seemed like such a rich canvas, you know, like the, the there was so much betrayal and like 
teams imploding and companies exploding and money won and lost and like all, you know, just all of this stuff, right? And you look around and there's like, political thrillers, there are spy thrillers, there's medical thrillers, legal thrillers, like all these different settings. And I was like, this is a great setting for that kind of an adventure story. And particularly also because the one thing that that the nonfiction books miss, like, so thrillers are entertainment, right? But there is also something that fiction has that nonfiction has a harder time doing. And that is that Nonfiction can give you really good intellectual takeaways, right? So it's like, I went through all this stuff, here, here are the lessons I learned. Mm-hmm. Um, but what fiction's able to do is give you a window into someone else's actual experience as they're going through it. So it, it gives you this like secret, you know, little peek mm-hmm. into their mind, into their soul, into their heart as they're going through these really difficult problems. So um, at the time, did you, when you started the book, did you know, well, what I have here is a novel? So the, here's how I started it. First, I actually wrote the back cover copy huh. of the first book. Okay. And what was really odd to me, so the, you know, this is the dust jacket, so the couple paragraphs that are like the teaser for the, for the story. And um, what, what actually shocked me is that this is almost word for word the exact yeah. cover copy that I wrote, which was like, I now find incredible because things change so much from inception to conclusion, right? You wrote yourself a book pitch. Right. And after that, I didn't outline, I didn't really do anything except for opening a blank word document and starting to write chapter one. And that turned into chapter two and turned into chapter three. And after I got a few chapters in, I just decided to keep going. So you're writing the first book, Uncommon Stock, and you at some point decide uh, I need to sort of take a little bit of a break from the day-to-day business work. What prompted that? So that was actually totally separate from the writing of the book itself. Uh, my wife and I have always loved traveling. Um, we actually met. We were both living in Taipei studying Mandarin. Um, and so we, we've loved traveling. You know, I, I'd been just working for the firm for probably three years and a couple of years working in startups before that. So we had had sort of a segment of time in our lives where, you know, I guess maybe seven years worth where we hadn't done as much travel as we used to. And we really thought it would be worthwhile to, to take a mental break, uh, you know, rather than like a two week vacation, actually get off grid, actually disconnect and give yourself a little bit more perspective. And so we had been hoping to do that for years. And we finally just pulled the trigger and we're like, we're going to make this happen regardless of the consequences. <laughs> you, you were working with this venture firm and you said, I want to go away for six months. We initially planned on doing six months and we ended up doing nine. And, and it was actually an interesting professional time for me because that was just as I was planning to transition out. Um, and I had already gotten a few companies that I was working with independently. And so I had to tell both the firm and those companies, hey, I'm, I'm out. And I assumed that that would burn a bridge and I was very surprised and very lucky that it didn't. So I was, I was sort of shocked. I, both of us were. We were expecting that taking that step back would really be a professional challenge and would really be difficult for other people who we worked with to, to be okay with. And we were universally surprised that the firm itself, the, the other companies I was working with were extremely understanding and just said, that sounds cool. Like, we'll see you when you get back. So, so, so you both said, all right, to your employers, adios for six, the plan right. was six months. Mm-hmm. 
um, you had been working on this thing that you you knew you wanted to write a novel and you were that was the goal. Did you take it with you and, and try to work at all while you were traveling? I did. So I was probably about halfway through the book when we left. Mm-hmm. And then I worked very irregularly on it while we were gone because the first the first two months we spent in Nepal mm-hmm. and we were the first thirty we did a thirty three day backcountry trek. Like that's how we started. So I mean it was no electricity, there was nothing. So like I definitely didn't do any work then. Um but then maybe halfway through we were in places that had basic infrastructure, uh, like, you know, halfway through the trip. So then I started working more on it, and I actually finished the rough draft of the first book on a beach in the Maldives, which was pretty sweet. <laughs> you came back, mm-hmm. you had a finished novel, or mm-hmm. draft of a novel. Did you know what you were going to do with it yet to get it out in the world? So that's a really good question, particularly because the world of publishing has really changed a lot in the past 10 years. What's happening in publishing now is sort of a quirky parallel to what happened to music in the early 2000s in in terms of like industry dynamics uh, for for book publishing I'm talking about, not other kinds of publishing. And I've been following this very closely because I was curious, like, what should I do now that I have this big Word document? Like, what am I going to do with it? And um, after doing a lot of research about the different paths out there, so uh, you know, the traditional path would be find a literary agent, which you usually submit about 100 applications. You wait, see if you get lucky and one accepts you. If you do, then they work with you to bit, write a big proposal to the five big publishers that still exist. And then you hope that one gives you an advance and, and bets on your book. And then the process can often take two years to go from there to actually seeing your book on shelves. And the as a first-time author of fiction who is not famous, mm-hmm. the likelihood of mine getting a good deal from those publishers is very low. Mm-hmm. And the contract terms that they offer you are draconian by today's standards. So they made a lot of sense when publishers controlled all distribution in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But with the way that people actually read today, we were talking about how you've eliminated quite a few of your physical books uh, in favor of digital versions, those contracts make so little sense today. So I was very uninterested in that, um, in that path. And I had seen that a number of authors like Hugh Howey and others had, had really taken off doing self-publishing. So I was, that's what I was planning on doing. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to self-publish these books just get it straight to readers. I mean, I mean, I was planning on investing a lot in editors. Like, I did not want it to just be rough. I wanted to make it so that a reader would not be able to tell the difference between these books and, and a book from Random House. So that was my plan. But my plan, again, shattered when it met reality. Yeah. I shared the rough of the first book with Brad Feld, who's he's a famous venture investor. He runs the Foundry Group, which is based, or he, he's one of four partners who run the Foundry Group, which is a venture capital firm based in Boulder. And he has a well-read blog and is a pretty no, well-known like industry talking head. And I shared the initial draft with him, and he was super enthusiastic about it. He'd actually been reading the drafts along the way. He was really supportive, which was wonderful for me because he was sort of this big name in my field. And to get his just personal like emails about it was cool. And when I sent him the full rough, he was like, hey, we're thinking of starting a publishing company. Would you be interested in publishing with us? I was like, 
what? <laughs> like, <laughs> so here, here we're just going to hand you this right, thing. Like, here you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a complete shock, um, and uh, ended up you know talking to them about it quite a bit, and 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 ended up publishing with them, and and so Uncommon Stock Version One was actually their first title. When was it officially released? The first book. This was March of 2014, so March last year. Did you know when you were writing the first one? What, what I have here is not just one novel, it's a trilogy. I did. Um, again, I had no outline. So when I was writing book one, I didn't know what would happen in books two or three. I just knew that whenever I read a trilogy, you, you have a sense of the narrative arc, right? Like, th- you know, things get bigger as you go forward. And so I knew I knew that the overall narrative arc would be a trilogy, but I was only sort of working on the scene that I was writing at the time. What changed in sort of across your writing time of the three books there. Yeah, so actually the more dramatic comparison would actually be on editorial. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first book, I did like seven major revisions, you know, re- rewriting major sections of the book, mm-hmm. changing structural stuff. Um, and a lot of that was probably because I didn't outline, um, <laughs> right? I mean, in, in the writing world there, or in the novelist world, I guess, there's this dichotomy of pant- uh, pantsers and plotters, right? Mm-hmm. So like J.K. Rowling, who wrote Harry Potter, was famous for outlining every single thing that happened in all seven books before starting to write book one. Whereas uh, George R. R. Martin, who wrote Game of Thrones, <laughs> started it as a short story. And, well, we, we see where, where that's gone. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm more in George's camp. Mm. Um, I definitely just sort of like let the characters make decisions and see where that took the story. So when you started book two, let's say, Mm. did you know, all right, by the end of this book, I need to have gotten to point Z from point A, or did you really just not know where it was going to land? I mean, I basically knew two things. I knew that because it was a trilogy and because I wanted to on the startup side, take them from like basically being two friends just working on something from their house uh, to being a large, successful company, that this should be a good snapshot, right? So this should be, if it's book two, they should be somewhere in the middle, right? Like they should be like a mid-sized company that's growing. And like, and then in the third book, I knew, okay, like this is when, this would be the perfect time for a snapshot showing how they've really grown. And like an IPO is a nice way to, to demonstrate that, right? Um, and and same on the sort of adventure side of the books, uh, that, that uh, I knew that we'd need to have this huge final confrontation in book three, right? And like book two, it's like they need to discover that these, these this conspiracy goes deeper than, than they realized. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the extent that I knew where I wanted to go. Um, and then I would daydream about it. I would talk to a few friends about it and like bounce idea, bounce different ideas and then think about, try to put myself into each character and think about how they would react to different situations and stuff like that. While you were writing the second and third books, were you also doing uh, business consulting work on the side? Yes. So I, I still do about 50-50 in terms of time. My first impression would be that those kinds of work are quite different. But are there things that you kind of carry back and forth between the, the two sides of your work life? Besides the obvious, you know, you're writing, you, you've been writing books set sure. in the startup world. Yeah. So on the process side, there have definitely been some crossover. So one is that when 
so one thing I didn't expect writing the books was sort of what would happen after they released. Um, and, <laughs> and so now, you know, they're like, they have fans, which to me is sort of crazy. Like, it's like, what? Like someone actually read this? <laughs> like, that's cool. And, and, you know, I get cold emails from people who like, I cold emailed you about your, uh, story about this house. Right. And, and I get those kinds of emails from people all over the world that I've never met before who find something that they love in the stories, which really amazes me because I love reading and I email very few authors, yeah. <laughs> like almost none. And, and so trying to think about, it was actually useful to, to bring some of the, the business lens to thinking about the books after they've been written. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm very careful to try to not bring the business lens to the books before I write them, because I think that my, these books are entertainment. They're not, you know, and they're meant to be entertainment, but, but any kind of creative act is some kind of artwork, right? And I feel like if you take a commercial lens to creating art, it usually doesn't end up with like art that's all that awesome at the end of the day. That said, once the that piece has been created, using a business lens to think about how it's shared, how it's distributed, how it's published, I think that's very useful. And so that's where I see a lot of crossover. So whether it's, uh, you know, okay, if I were to be an advisor to myself as an author and thinking about now that these books exist, how could we go out and do things in, in different ways to, uh, that, that would be more interesting or, or more useful than how other stuff is done? You know, th that's where I think the business and the, the publishing sort of crosses over. Yeah. You don't want to smell the business plan wafting off of the creative work. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not... it, it baked into its pages or... On, on and it's screen. also way less fun, right? Like, I mean, if you're like, like, if that's the reason you're doing it, I feel like there are other ways to make better money. Yeah. <laughs> um, you had this relationship kind of accidentally right. with this small press that was an outgrowth of a venture firm in, in Boulder. What made your relationship with that small press different from, say, a traditional author to press relationship? So there were a few things. Um, one, the, the very obvious one is that uh, normally, and the, bear in mind, this is like we're talking in averages because every contract is slightly different. But on average, most authors get about 15% versus 85% that goes to the publisher. And, and we're talking about royalties across all formats. So Every format actually has a different royalty split. So again, it's complicated if you want to get into the math, but at the end of the day, it's about 1585 for a normal contract. And that made a lot of sense in the 60s because that there were a huge amount of cost on the printing and distribution side that the publisher had to cover that the author didn't do anything for. Um, but that's changed a lot. And now because the industry dynamic is different, it doesn't make sense to have to maintain those same terms. And so FG Press basically when they started they were like okay we're not going to try to overthink this what all we're going to do is just try to come up with a schema for interacting with authors that makes sense given the current dynamic and so they they have a 50-50 net royalty split meaning that we're basically partners right so we we split the profits from the book in any format and so like that's a very tangible thing that was different about working with them but also not that interesting. I mean, it's like 
okay, 50-50 instead of 1585. Is that we were able to do a ton of sort of fun experiments for fans that would have been very difficult to get a traditional publisher to do. Again, given that I'm not a big, they wouldn't have probably given me a large advance. So I wouldn't have gotten a lot of attention from them. And so what that, so a few of the things that were fun is like, we created a real website for the fictional startup in the books. The fictional protagonist did a, like an interview that was published as if it was real um, on tech.co. The venture firm that is behind this, this small press issued a press release in which they announced an investment into the fake startup. You know, like we've done all these things and yeah. like that would have been really tough if you were working with Penguin. You know, like they would definitely hook you up to like hopefully get some interviews or get some reviews out there. But we were able to do these sort of experiments that fans have really gotten a kick out of and that are really different from what other publishers are able to do. And that, that's where I've had the most fun. Whoa, here's another one that none of the big five would ever approve. And that is that we took the entire first book, broke it up into 10 parts, and serially published it for free on Medium. Your relationship with uh, FG has continued across all three books? They published the first two, and I actually negotiated the right to self-publish the third one. Why? Because I've always been interested in it, um, and I, like I, I wanted to be able to do it and try to do everything myself and have that level of like extra control that sort of goes along with it. So I actually ended up hiring their designer to do all the design. So it's it's been very like again we it's been very amicable. You sort of just took the reins from them to exactly. some degree from the process. Um, so the third book has just come out and. Presumably, you will spend a certain amount of time marketing the book and and the trilogy, but then what? Here's where some, where where my perspective on business and being a novelist is actually like sort of different, um, and and that is that the marketing that I do for the book I see as there are two components. One is, and this is by far the most important. I just want to do things that uh, that fans of people who already like the books get a kick out of, right? So that might be something like doing that Q&A with the main character because it's like, oh, that's neat. I love that book. It would be like if Han Solo did a Q&A or something, right? So it's sort of cool. And then the second piece is if there are ways to like meeting folks like you who might have an audience who might connect with the books, right? And I used to think, oh, like I need to try to like make a lot of noise and like get, you know, get as much exposure as possible because that's that's what marketing is. That's what like promotion for a book it like how do we get this covered? Like all this stuff. I do way less of that now. Now I'm really much more focused on okay, if there is someone like you where I read an essay and I'm like that's actually really cool. Like this guy I would love to just have a conversation with and like maybe there's actually something interesting we could talk about that would be relevant to his audience. Those things I like to do, but that's it. Like, I'm, I don't do, like, you know, crazy paid promotional campaigns or, you know, things like that. The thing that I'm focused most on is number one, which is what can I do for readers who already like my writing? Um, and it's actually really obvious. People who like my novels want one thing above all else, and that is another novel. Mm. 
And so to me, the most important thing that I can do both as in terms of developing craft, because I have a ton to learn as a storyteller and in terms of like getting my audience excited is to write another book. So I've already started on the next one. And, and I see that as like the most important thing. You've already started on another book, a new novel, without asking you to give too much away. A similar approach, like business thriller? Not, not in the same way. This news story, although it does involve technology and involves people that li- some people that live in that world, it's not the same. Like it's, the, it, it's more of like a, like it's set in a near future Bay Area where sort of persistent surveillance and income inequality have both gone through the roof. It's not, it's not at all the same in terms of it's about a tech startup going from garage to IPO. No, there are characters in it that, that, are, that live in that world, but it's not about the process. So uh, the Uncommon Stock books, um, not that they were disconnected from current events and from world affairs, but it sounds like this new story you're working on uh, is much more directly commenting on what's happening in in the Bay Area, in the world generally the day, sort of current events and public affairs. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, the reason why I got sort of interested in exploring those themes of economic inequality and uh, persistent surveillance is in part because we had, we, I mean, we, we live a couple blocks from each other and, and the protests this year have been really crazy. Um, and what I've found is, you know, I've lived abroad quite a bit, but I grew up in Oakland and I'm always surprised uh, coming back to the U.S. when compared to any other industrialized nation out there, when you visit the U.S., it's like you have places that are unbelievably wealthy and communities that are huge, like completely little bubbles of their own, their own world of gated communities and everything's perfect. And then you can drive half an hour and you can be in a place that looks like it could be a favela. Right. Um, and I think that that is uh, it's something that I find really worrying. <laughs> um, like, I don't think that leads to good things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I definitely think that it's a trend that many people far smarter than me are exploring and trying to tackle. But definitely one where I hope that, again, the lens of fiction can sort of humanize it a little bit. So you have been writing and doing the business work 50-50 mix, give or take. If you meet somebody at a party and they say to you, um, Elliot Pepper, each of your names has one too few letters in it. <laughs> Severe <laughs> lack of consonants. <laughs> what do you what do you call, what do you call yourself? How do you spend your time? How do you answer that? I usually talk about the books first, yeah. and really, that's not so much because I want to like not out of my own desire, but just because I've had enough of those conversations where when I describe both, people are usually more interested in hearing about novels than they are about like. I mean, unless maybe they are working at a startup and like they want to talk strategy. Yeah. Right. But, but if you like, say like, oh, consult with businesses, it, I mean, yeah, that's they, so boring, they fall right? asleep. Yeah, immediately. yeah, yeah. So if I'm like, oh, I'm a novelist, then it's like, oh, cool. Okay. okay. Yeah. I'm not asking you to show me your bank statements, but uh, given my admittedly limited, but some understanding of, of the world of writing and publishing, nobody's making any money off of this. Like this. <laughs> is not your primary source of income. Definitely not. But no. it is the thing that you seem most primarily motivated to continue doing. Do you have in your head or on a spreadsheet somewhere <laughs> a point at which you would say, this is what I do full time? So as you said, I make 
almost all of my money off of advising startups, not off of writing novels. Um, but I spend a lot of intellectual effort and, uh, on the novels. Um, you're right. The world of publishing is, is trying to figure out its business model for the future. Um, and, but, but I found something that, I, that it's something I'm already experiencing that's really interesting is that although I don't, I can't show you a bank statement that will make you jealous <laughs> from the novels. Um, what I have seen is that I've made a lot of connections with people who are readers of the novels that have been absolutely invaluable to my other work. And so some people do this. So this is very obvious if, say, you're an expert at something and you write a book about your expertise and then like you go keynote at conferences and get paid for that. Right. So that's sort of like in the nonfiction world, that's like the way to do it. Right. Like you write a book and you then, write like, to speak, you write to speak and like novels that doesn't work. But, but that's also the strength of fiction, right? Because it doesn't depend on the author's reputation. So if you like a story for the story's sake, that's enough. And you might recommend it to a friend based solely on that. Um, but what, I, what I've found from the books is that there, there, I've heard from many folks who work in the world, the business world that, that I also work in, um, who love them. And because of that, I've met them chatted with them, get to know them. And that's turned into many other opportunities as an advisor to startups than I ever would have imagined and that are worth a hell of a lot more than my royalty statements from FG Press. Um, and so I, I think that going forward, when you look at the business of creativity, it's, it's really interesting because it's becoming very relationship-based, um, not just in terms of financial return, but also because an, any artist, whether you're a musician or a podcaster or anything else, the, the, Cory Doctorow, who wrote Little Brother, right, his, his like famous shtick is that he's also a, a, he's one of the best speakers I've ever seen. I don't know if you've ever listened to him, but um, you know, he says that any artist's greatest challenge is obscurity. Right. And that's even more the case now when we have this world of digital abundance where like any piece of media is is just everywhere and anywhere. Yeah. Cut to an animation, me standing on a lonely hilltop. Right. Like, flag that says, uh, pay, pay attention. attention to me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the 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 reverse side of that is that if you do put out good material, even if you are playing club shows, right, like if you're even if you have a small audience, like access to that audience is pretty magical. And you're able to do a lot more with that than you might realize. Mm -hmm. And like I've like for the third book, you know, they're going through an IPO. I've never been through an IPO. Right. But because a bunch of people like the first two, I got in, like direct introductions to CEOs who have taken multiple pu companies public on NASDAQ and NYSE mm -hmm. and and I got to just chat with them. And they told me these crazy war stories that you would never find in the news, right? And ostensibly, it's literally like, oh, you're writing a novel, like, this could help, right? Like, and it's actually beautiful that I'm not a journalist because they're not worried about me, like, right. I don't know, turning it into uh, some clickbait or something. Airing the dirty yeah, laundry. The, yeah, right, right. Yeah. But, like, that is, that is phenomenal. And so I've met so many folks through that that there have been enormous non-financial returns to this creative work. So you're working on fourth novel now. Do you ever miss maybe the wrong word, but do you ever think about pointing yourself back in that policy direction that you thought you were going to be pointed in for a long time? 
You know, that's an interesting question. Um, I definitely not in the way that I was looking at it before. Um, I think that in that sense, maybe the nostalgia piece that I question myself on more often would be whether I should be doing it, like might want to join a, a new technology company full time, you know, and join a management team and try to build a, a big technology company. Um, I feel like that's maybe the one that I look back on and think about. But, you know, the the thing that I find more interesting about policy now is when I think that when you look at our the, the system that we've created ourselves to live in, our, how governance works right now, um, there are a lot of issues with that. I mean, and, and issues that go beyond simply that most Americans don't support Congress. Right. <laughs> I, I think that there are some some issues that are more worrying to me in the sense that technology has actually cause changes in society far more rapidly than we set up our governance system to really adjust to. And that has serious policy implications because, and it's across so many different areas, you know, and, and technological change worked so much slower, you know, a hundred years ago, even though that was fast, right? Like it's been accelerating since the advent of agriculture and in since computers came around, it's just been really changing the way that the world works in so many ways that it makes it really difficult for our governance systems to catch up to. But those governance systems are just as important as they ever were before, even if they're not functioning that well. Because even if we are in living in a world of rapid technological change, and even if that technology manages to fulfill probably the inflated promise that it puts out there. You know, we're we're still just a group of people living on this like huge piece of land in North America, right? Like we still have the onus is on us to decide how we want to live and how we're going to live. Like we were talking about economic inequality before, you know, that's getting much worse in 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 our current society. And I think that technologies that are able to make the economy more efficient and do things better are fantastic, right? Like I, I fully embrace that. And when you look at the history of technological change, sometimes certain jobs are, are, are lost because of it. There aren't that many, you know, typists anymore, but then they hopefully create a bunch of higher, you know, higher uh, skilled jobs to replace them. But that's not always true. And even if it is true, the transition is often messy. And I think that when you pair the fact that we're going through more, more of those transitions more quickly than ever before, and you pair that with increasing economic inequality where you have technologies that are centralizing power over infrastructure and, and other things that we use in our daily lives and centralizing ownership of that power, that, that's a problem that can only be dealt with through policy, because those are the problems of living in human society. Mm. Um, and those problems don't have technical solutions. Like, although the world is always changing, the 
fortunate slash unfortunate constant is human nature, right? And like, we still have to struggle with that. And like, for all its inefficiency, government is the basic way to do that, right? Like, even if we're a tribe, we have to figure out how we're going to make decisions together. Um, and so in that sense, I'm very, I've, I'm very interested in that. I think I would not be interested in being an academic researcher of of individual policies, right? But but I think that those trends are something I pay a lot of attention to. And if there was ever anything I can do to yeah. to like help, you know, nudge it along, like I'd certainly love to. Well, Elliot Pepper, thank you so much for the time for uh, again uh, trudging the many blocks to my house. You even wore a shirt that says I walked, which is (laughs) entirely accurate. accurate. Uh, Nice and wrinkled. (laughs) It was a pleasure to talk to you. Um, Good luck with Uncommon Stock Exit Strategy uh, and in the writing of the new book. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Elliot Pepper is the author of the Uncommon Stock Trilogy. The third book, Uncommon Stock Exit Strategy, has just come out. You can find out more about Elliot and find links to purchase his books on his website, elliotpepper.com. But remember what he said about severe lack of consonants? That's spelled E-L-I-O-T-P-E-P-E-R dot com. You can follow the thriller that is The Eastern Shore at tespodcast.com. You can download all my previous interviews there, subscribe to the show. You can also find the show in iTunes or Stitcher, but to drink directly from the source head over to tespodcast.com. This has been the Eastern Shore. I have been, and even though I won't respond if you yell this name in a public place, continue to be Brock Winstead. Thank you for listening.
for that thumb. Totally. Well, that was a little tech snafu there, but you're listening to Best Frequencies Forever, BFF.FM. Now it's time for San Francisco People with Frank Garza. Don't go anywhere. Hey, everybody. Welcome to San Francisco People. This is Frank Garza, and I'm excited to introduce you guys today to Lark Miller on the show. He is a personal trainer, 